Kia ora koutou. I'm Brent Giblin, and you're listening to Faux Heritage Stories, a series of talks presented by historian Lisa Trutman with support from Faux Local Board and Auckland Libraries. Prepare yourself for tales of horse races, lost guns, World War I adventures, and more in this exciting series. It's 1934, the year of Bonnie and Clyde. In Auckland, a theft really catches the public's imagination. A Vickers machine gun and ammunition suddenly goes missing from a New Lynn church hall. There's a mysterious handwritten note, followed by a threatening phone call. How could you not be intrigued? We begin today's tale at St Andrew's Church Hall, which was more used to hosting Sunday school classes than gangsters. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming here today. Um, as Sarah was saying, this talk is about, and as you know from the posters, is about the 1934 theft of the Vickers machine gun from the St Andrew's Church Hall. Now that church hall in Margaret Ave, New Lynn, was built over the course of 1928 to 1929, sadly demolished in 2019. It had one odd chapter to its history, which is this. It was the scene of the theft, a crime for which no perpetrators were ever found at all brought to justice. Considering the generally peaceful purposes of Reverend William Pillen Rankin's building, the theft of involving a vicar's machine gun and the ammunition as well, it does seem rather at odds with the rest of the building story, but not really so. Reverend Rankin, who built the hall, he connected um, he, he was connected with the church across the road and intended primarily for Sunday school classes, but also for other activities. And one of the things he actually liked to do was go across the road to the clay uh, clay pits and watch the um, volunteers territorials actually using the machine gun and using their weapons and firing at things. He thought this was a wonderful thing. So. In the, in the midst of all the other community purposes, the five-year-old hall by 1934 was being used. It was also being used as a training drill hall for the local territorials who came from Henderson, Swanson and Glen Eden, not New Lynn. There weren't New Lynn volunteers. These were volunteers from other parts of West Auckland, which might be one of the reasons why all this happened. On Saturday afternoons, the men would engage in their shooting practice in the nearby clay pits. The trustees for the hall were only too happy to give the territorials permission to store their equipment there. This included a Vickers machine gun on loan for the military authorities, complete with its own tripod and ammunition. Fully equipped to mount it, the gun was always locked in its own special box in the hall. Machine guns as an auto-loading firearm date from the 1880s, but came into their own during the First World War. Used up in the sky in airplanes, and on the ground in conjunction with the trenches. Before the war, cadet trainees had rifles. After the war, they also had access to machine guns. Target practice must certainly have been a step above the old rifle ranges from the late 19th century and the first decade of the 20th. On Friday the 25th of August, the theft of the weapon and its ammunition from the hall was discovered, and both the Defence Department and the police were notified. Auckland had been rattled before when something deadly had apparently been let loose into the city. The most famous instance was in September 1925, nine years before this happened, when a female leopard escaped Auckland Zoo. Now that sent Aucklanders into an absolute tizzy of panic. 
with imagined sightings, headlines and newspaper columns and tales of strange sounds in the night spooking the heck out of people for weeks before the poor animals found floating dead off Karaka Bay at Glendowie. What caught the public imagination this time, though, in 1934? Depression era. Also the era where people were going to movies, and by that stage the movies were talkies. Over and above the news that someone out in the community now had a working machine gun in Depression era Auckland, was an almost cheerfully handwritten note left at the hall by the thieves expressing their thanks to the government for the gun and adding that they were determined and, quote, meant business. The printing on the letter seemed very similar to other similarly threatening examples that had earlier been received by the mayor of New Lynn, George Nielsen and his town clerk, Richard M. Richard Cathy. This is not going to behave. Yep. I think you'll tell, you have to tell Brent he's going to have to redo. Mm-hmm. In a year that had started with reports overseas of American desperados like John Dillinger and Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame committing their deeds with the aid of handheld machine guns, the news of the missing New Lynn gun made folks jittery. In January that year, the New Zealand Press reported how John Dillinger had raided the First National Bank in Chicago, entering it with a machine gun in a music case as if he, he were carrying a trombone. Police were sprayed with bullets by him and his gang, and hostages were taken. Clyde Barrow had broken out five of his associates from a state prison farm in Huntsville, Texas, with a machine gun that same month. Seven machine gun bandits raided a bank in Iowa in March, stole $52,000, and used the customary device of taking hostages to cover their escape. Jewel robbers in Vancouver in July used a dummy machine gun to steal over $327,000 worth of diamonds. So when it was reported by the New Zealand Herald that a phone call had been made by persons unknown, intimating that an attempt would be made using the gun to rob the Auckland Trotting Club the day after the gun's theft by raiding the vehicle used to take the money from the club to the bank. Folks here in Auckland were worried. The police took no chances. They put on a special guard of six cars. All of the seven detectives there were armed with loaded revolvers and an alternate route from the usual was followed. The journey was completed without incident. Colonel John Evelyn Dugan, Commandant of the Northern Command, did try to put people's minds at ease about the whole matter. He reported that the gun was just a drill pattern gun and not of the latest design, and that the stolen ammunition was poor quality. It was doubted, he said, that the gun would fire many rounds at all without a stoppage occurring. So no one should panic, right? Yes, well, but uh, the Auckland Star helpfully informed their readers that it is a comparatively easy matter for any adult person desirous of obtaining ball cartridges of 303 calibre to make purchases from shops at any time without a permit. So helpful. The gun was, they added, relatively easy to carry. One man for the gun, another for the tripod. Easy enough to tote around. There you go, all sorted. Aucklanders, resume your panicking. 
the news of the theft made bold and hard-to-miss headlines around the country. Military authorities as far away as Christchurch reassured their residents there that their training guns were well secured against any theft and that those displayed in museums and other places were merely war trophies made entirely useless from an offensive point of view, they said, so the local press reported. Christchurch, they said, would afford no opportunities for any desperado desirous of emulating the escapades of Dillinger. Some felt that the Newland guns removal was simply a ploy to get back at the Defence Department for staging their practices, which annoyed some locals. The Rewa Rewa Creek and its lagoon was dredged, just in case the gun had been dumped there by the thieves. No, nothing there. The matter even became briefly political. When Labour MP for Auckland Central and later Minister of Internal Affairs from 1935 to 1949, William Edward Parry, suggested in Parliament later that month of August 1934 that, quote, the disappearance of the machine gun from New Lynn recently was arranged to justify the establishment of the Auxiliary Police Force. The Auxiliary Police Force was a move by the then Coalition Government to establish a force of civilian reservists to augment the police force in times of riots and other civil unrest at the time. And you may no, no doubt be aware of the famous Queen Street riot, for example, that took place during the Depression. Of which, um, the, the, and that's of the, which of those famous examples, part, part, uh, Perry certainly seemed to sense a conspiracy. We have been treated, he said, to the spectacle of a machine gun being stolen in New Lynn. We have been told that the machine gun has been stolen and that a note was left behind. Well, I have received from a very important person, he never named the very important person, a letter suggesting that the gun was removed by someone who was paid to do the job in order to justify what is being thrust on the people of New Zealand. I say those gangster methods belong to America and other foreign nations and are totally foreign to our country. His statements weren't taken up by his fellow parliamentarians who went on with the business of justifying the coalition's work and trying to ease the Great Depression and the opposition Labour Party's work in establishing themselves as the next government the following year. By early September 1934, there were still no leads in the case. A military board of inquiry was set up to look into the circumstances of the theft, but nothing further seemed to happen. But then on the morning of Sunday the 4th of November, Herbert Archibald Hamill, 39, and a returned soldier from Totra Avenue in New Lynn, with one of his six children, was making his way across the old trestle bridge that connected Clark Street on the New Lynn side with Wolverton Street on the Avondale side, just alongside the railway bridge at what is today Olympic Park. By then there was no, back then there was no sweeping roadway taking you from the Avondale side of the creeks to the New Lynn side beside the railway line, only a footbridge, which would remain as such until the late 1960s. Hamill stopped to light a cigarette and happened to look downward at the mud beside the creeks. It was windy at the time, he later told the Auckland Star, and I bent down to shield the flame from my lighter. At first he thought he'd spotted just another bit of rubbish, an old car part tossed carelessly aside into the creek, 
protruding from the ewes. Lots and lots of cars went over the Wow Bridge and didn't really come out again until they were hauled out by the wreckers. I continued on across the bridge, he said, and then when near the railway crossing, I thought that perhaps, perhaps what I saw was the missing machine gun. Perhaps his war experience helped him there. He may have recognised what a machine gun actually looked like. So he climbed down and waited in the mud to take a closer look. The New Zealand Herald reported he recovered the main portion of the gun, the handles of which had been showing above the mud, the cartridge bands being wound around the cylinder, the tripod, which was several feet from the cylinder, and a leather bag containing spare parts, which was strapped to the tripod. So that's everything, basically, was there. After placing the objects on the bank of the creek, Mr. Hamill informed Constable Bogue of New Lynn. Apparently, after some restoration, the gun was pronounced to be in perfect order despite the water and the mud, thanks to having been kept well-oiled by the Territorials. But from that point on, the Territorials never did their practices here in New Lynn. I found no further record of the newspapers of them actually doing that from that point on. It was thought that, after all that, the theft of the gun had simply been just a local protest against the territorial training in Newland District, although a certain motive was never ascertained for sure. The police continued their inquiries for a time, but no one was ever caught for the crime of nicking the gun from Reverend Rankin's Sunday School Hall. That's it. Any questions? Don't know. I would presume it would have gone back to the Defence Department and probably been scrapped. They were actually selling a whole lot of scrap metal and parts and everything else, ironically, to Japan just before World War II. Yes, all of those war trophies, I mean, the war trophy business is an aside. We have time and I can make the aside. Um, Sarah's saying, oh, oh yes, only quarter of an hour. Yes. Um, right from actually the 19th century, they're bringing war trophies in from the Crimean War, Attachments, some of those ended up in Albert Park, definitely from the Boer War and definitely from First World War. Now, they they bought this in basically almost by the, the container load, equivalent of containers in those days. They didn't have containers then, but that's the equivalent. They The government would hand these out like mad to not only local councils, you know, uh, there was one at uh, Waikawai Park in Mount Roscoe, and there's one's in Albert Park and one's in the Domain. But they're also giving guns, decommissioned guns, to schools. Um, I've seen a reference of one given to three, two, was now three King School, Mount Roscoe School. And I thought myself, okay, right, that's interesting. Um, yeah, have this. They were doing a lot of this immediately post World War One into the 1920s. But come the 1930s, people started changing their mind about this and they were concerned about their kids climbing on these guns and treating guns as if they were somehow normal. Good point. And that war was a good and fun thing. Another very good point to this thing. So they were saying, get rid of these, these weaponry. And so a lot of them were taken out of the parks and taken out of the places. And um, there were guns that were buried in, Albert, in parts of Albert Park. Definitely the Newmarket um, gun was was famously buried in Newmarket during World War II in case the Japanese came across and says, oh, look, a gun, we will bomb this place. And they, they, they found it 
later on quite by accident in the 1960s. Uh, but the rest that they, they did have, they just hauled away, sent off to it to Japan, got money for it, for the scrap, and of course a lot of that metal would have come back in the form of zeros and everything else, attacking Pearl Harbor and Darwin and um, other parts of the Pacific and everything else. So that's just what that sort of thing happened. And a lot of these things with these guns and armaments and everything else, if they couldn't reuse them or later on give them to the Home Guard in World War II for training, which they did do quite a bit, they said, here, here's this old bit of tech, use this for your training. Um, yeah, they were scrapped. Thanks for listening to this talk from Faux Heritage Stories. Stay tuned to hear the next episode. If you want to hear other author talks, concerts and in-depth heritage commentaries, head to the Auckland Library's website to subscribe. Matewa.